Welcome to the Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Watt. Have you ever heard of the normalcy bias? If you haven't, it's time you learned about it because it is affecting your life right now. In these strange days and the ones ahead, the normalcy bias could kill you. Certainly, it's deeply affecting the Christian church in America. We need to understand it and get beyond it. When we do, there can be love in the darkness ahead. Let's go to a talk I gave on Resurrection Day on a Hollywood studio lot. You know, when we celebrate Resurrection Day, we are looking back at the most important moment in history, if it's true. And of course, we have uh, pinned our lives on that, on the evidence that it's true. And I think there's good and sufficient evidence that it is true. But if that's all we do, if all we're doing is looking back, then I think we're missing and misunderstanding the nature of what the message really is. The resurrection of Jesus predicts a future. When all shall rise, my father, my, my mother, my sister, whose bodies sleep in the ground right now, in a little cemetery in Tonkawaw, Oklahoma, they're going to rise, countless others. That is the promise of the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't know how you live without that truth and that promise active in your life. In all the years that I spent in Hollywood, I can tell you this, I don't know how people live in this industry without that hope, but they do. They continue to stagger along. How do they live, of course? They have a whole lot of things they depend upon to try to hide from the nature of the truth of their own mortality. The core that hope that we have for the future is the return of Jesus to this earth. It's an essential teaching of the New Testament. And Jesus said that when the days of the end arrive, we will be able to know it by all that is happening around us. Now there, unfortunately, and I, I'm afraid this is true, that there are few churches that are really teaching and preaching about the return of Jesus. Oh, we occasionally refer to it in some way. But, you know, there's this sense of the attitude is, I think, we don't want to look like crazy people. And there have been plenty of crazy people in the past who predicted that Jesus was going to come back soon. There's some guy who's you know, the pastor this morning we heard referred to this guy who's putting up billboards. Jesus is coming back on, what is it, May 10th or something? 21st? Well, you know what? One thing I can be absolutely certain of, he won't come back the 21st. You know? <laughs> Maybe he'll come on the 20th, the 20th and the 23rd, but not the 20th. I don't who knows, but the, you know, this attitude is, you know, we don't want to look like crazy people. Well, some people are willing to look crazy in the wrong way. You know, why should we think right now that it's going to happen soon? What is there that's in front of us? You know, I think the attitude is, let's just focus on being good little Christians and uh, not worry about all that scary apocalyptic stuff. I think we need to be reminded of Second Peter 3, verses 1 to 13. Turn there with me, if you would. Beloved, I now write to you, this is the Apostle Peter writing, the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, of the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire 
until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now that's either true, or these are the words of a lunatic. Let's just flat out confront it on that level. Uh, we're going to talk about some things tonight that we don't normally talk about even in this study. The normalcy bias. The normalcy bias refers to a mental state people enter when facing a disaster. It causes people to underestimate both the possibility of a disaster occurring and its possible effects. This often results in situations where people fail to adequately prepare for a disaster. The assumption is, it's, it's like this, that since a disaster has never occurred, that it never will occur. It also results in the inability of people to cope with a disaster once it has occurred. People with a normalcy bias have a difficult time reacting to something they have not experienced before. They also tend to interpret warnings in the most optimistic way possible, seizing on any ambiguities to infer a less serious situation. Now, does that sound like some of us? It certainly sounds like me occasionally. The normalcy bias influences every one of our lives. It's natural for people uh, to want things to get back to normal. You know, we just want it. It's natural for people to want to live their lives as they have in the past without having to deal with disastrous change. It's natural, but it is lethal. It's like sunbathers lying in the sand when a tsunami is coming. We Christians, unfortunately, add another element to the normalcy bias. We expect our definition of a miracle to save us every time. Uh, now I have experienced true miracles of God. I believe in them. But far more often I have discovered in my life that uh, I've seen God work through difficult circumstances, even personal disasters, leaving me to wander through them under his guidance in order that I might learn what he wants me to know. You know, all the prophets of the Old Testament dealt with the normalcy bias in the nation of Israel. Over and over, God sent warnings through his prophets that if his people did not repent, utter destruction was on the way. Uh, you know, but uh, because it didn't come quickly and immediately, at the very end of the nation of Israel, those people disregarded it right up to the very end. They disregarded the warnings that were given. They clung to the idea that things wouldn't change, or at least not yet, even when obvious disaster was at the door. Worse, they persecuted the prophets who brought the warnings, and there were false prophets who encouraged the normalcy bias. This Resurrection Day, I believe the same thing is happening in the Western Church. The normalcy bias is controlling so much of the teaching, the preaching, and the very minds of Christians 
blinding us to the desperate warning signs that we are in the end of days. We Christians should be giving the warning to the world. Instead, we don't want to think about the signs, much less talk about them. We don't want to be considered uh, fanatics, do we? This is especially true for those of us who desire or are working in the kingdom of Hollywood. Boy, are we concerned to not look nutty in the wrong way. We can be nutty as far as Hollywood is concerned forever. We have to fit into their category of nuttiness. You know, my friends, Jesus really is coming back, and he brings both judgment and reward with him. Uh, that judgment is collective and individual. He will judge nations, and he will judge people. This Resurrection Day, my question to you is, are you ready for the return of the King and all that is going to lead up to it in the days ahead? Are you ready? Is your family ready? I don't mean selling everything you have and going out to wait for the second coming on a mountaintop. In fact, exactly the opposite. Being prepared begins with asking yourself whether you are a true disciple of Jesus. Are you really part of his family, or are you just sort of sniffing around the edges? Are your sins forgiven? Are they covered by the blood that he shed for you on the cross? Are you obeying him, trying to live by his guidance and for his glory? Are you looking for his coming with joy and working toward that great event, as Peter suggested we should do? These are the most important questions of your life. As we examine the many signs that point toward the end of days, right now uh, there are a couple of areas that I find especially interesting and disturbing. These are areas that are virtually unknown to most Christians. First, and I'm not going to get into this in much depth right now, are the strange and frightening signs that are appearing around the world in our skies. Hardly a day passes without a media report from somewhere of weird phenomena being observed in the heavens. I have been tracking such reports for decades. Now they are coming in waves. It might be good to remind ourselves of Jesus' words found in Luke 21, beginning with verse 5. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read that passage. I'm going to read that chapter. Beginning with verse 5 in Luke 21, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, Jesus said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what, what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls. 
But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth, Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I want to, I know this is an extensive passage, but I think it's so important. You know, so often we read the Bible, little cuts and pieces. We chop off a verse here and we look over there. Turn to Matthew 24. This is the parallel uh, passage in Matthew. Begin with verse 4. And just listen to what Jesus says here. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Uh, that passage and goes on with an amazing series of prophecies. He says in it, and I'll jump down here, but in that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. 
therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What a series of prophecies. Some have been fulfilled. Others are yet to be fulfilled. And there is much mystery in Jesus' words. Terrifying signs in the heavens. Cataclysms on earth. False leaders that appear to have staggering power. And the days just before the end will be as they were in the days of Noah, before the great flood. We're not going to take all that apart tonight. But I'm so concerned about what is happening and what is about to happen that I want to look at a couple of vital issues and a couple of vital pieces of information. First, what was it like in the days of Noah? Now, those were very, very strange days. We know from Genesis chapter 6 that genetic aberrations had appeared all over the earth. The essence of physical humanity, the human genome, had been corrupted through sexual intercourse, according to what the Scripture says, between humans and non-humans, which brought about a marriage of genetic material. In my opinion, there is no other reasonable way to understand Genesis chapter 6. Now, these gen genetic aberrations were half-human, and they were half-giant, and they're called in Genesis the mighty men of old, the Nephilim. In hundreds of cultures, uh, their exploits have come down to us in the myths and the legends of the gods and the demigods. It appears from Genesis and other sources of great antiquity that there was a concerted effort on the part of supernatural beings, fallen angels, to corrupt the genetic purity of the human race. Why? Some theologians speculate that it was to destroy the genetic line from which God's Messiah would be born. Foul the human gene pool and he would not appear. Jesus says that before the flood, marriages were taking place. According to Genesis, these marriages had filled the world with strange half-human beings who were very violent. Genesis tells us that Noah was chosen in part because he was pure in his generations. What does that mean? Not morally pure. He was sinful like all humans. Noah was genetically pure. He was fully human. So what did Jesus mean when he said that in the days before his coming, it would be as it was in the days of Noah? Eating, drinking, giving in marriage. Sounds like normal life, doesn't it? But normal life in the days of Noah was utterly abnormal. It was so evil and corrupt and violent that God decided to cleanse the entire earth of every living creature except those in the ark. Another way of saying this is that he destroyed every sentient physical being that was not fully human. So what were these partially human creatures? When you look back at the ancient myths and legends, over and over you encounter giants, and you encounter something called therianthropes. It's a strange word. Therianthropes are creatures that are half human and half animal, and they're certainly in mythology. We read about them as centaurs and shapeshifters, werewolves, satyrs. Uh, now, doesn't all of that sound like total fantasy? When you were studying these things in school, didn't you read these kind of myths and say, this is, they just had a wonderful imagination. None of that could have actually been real. When Jesus said it will be as it was in the days of Noah, he was suggesting, was he really suggesting this? That such beings in some way will appear again? In my opinion, legends and mythology give us a dim view of ancient reality. Though the transmission has been corrupted over eons of time, there is historical truth at the core. 
So from Jesus' prophecy, what might we expect? Well, they may not look like centaurs and satyrs, but I believe that strange things are coming. I know many of you are thinking, Coleman, either you're insane or you're just spending another dark fantasy novel in your head. Some of you may think that. I wish it were all that easy. Did you see the headline of the British newspaper, The Telegraph, on 2 April 2011? For those who missed it, here it is. Scientists have created genetically modified cattle that produce human milk in a bid to make cow's milk more nutritious. The article states that scientists have successfully introduced human genes into 300 dairy cows to produce milk with the same properties as human breast milk. Human milk contains high quantities of key nutrients that can help boost the immune system of babies and reduce the risk of infections. The scientists behind the research believe milk from herds of genetically modified cows could provide an alternative to human breast milk and especially formula milk for babies, which is often criticized as being an inferior substitute. Cows that are partially human exist right now. And I assure you that this is only the beginning. What is happening at this moment in laboratories around the world is both stunning and terrifying. Transhumanism is what it's called. Transhumanism is what scientists, many of the scientists who are involved in this consider to be the next giant leap in human evolution. Now, this may sound like science fiction, but I assure you that it is not. As always, so much of cutting-edge research is focused on the military. Whether they are comfortable with it or not, governments in this world today are caught up in a new and deadly arms race. Uh, the focus, how can we develop soldiers that are stronger, smarter, need no sleep, resilient against disease, are obedient, and have no moral qualms about killing? How can we construct through genetic reengineering, through the marriage of animal genes and technology with the human body, a better and smarter, perhaps virtually eternal human, a human that can communicate telepathically with a world hive to access almost unlimited information? Impossible? You think so? Those involved in this science say absolutely not. It is coming quickly. Research into this kind of human enhancement is far along. Very soon it's going to appear in many forms. Partially human milk cows are a minor introduction. As you probably know, animals are being created that can grow human organs for transplant. During the next decade, you will see transhuman science advance exponentially. The result will be animals that have increasing human qualities and humans that have increasing animal qualities. Add to this the marriage of nanotechnology and human robotics for military applications alone. World governments cannot afford to fall behind in such a race. Right now the question is being asked in scientific seminars, just exactly what does it mean to be human? According to the scientists who are deep at work within transhumanism, the difference between enhanced and unenhanced humans will be amazing. Ultimately, these scientists project that the difference between transhumans and the old human 1.0 version, you and me, will be so great that transhumans will keep the old version of us just for research and to do menial chores. That's encouraging, isn't it? The giants are coming, though they may not be nine feet tall. If any of you are interested in more research in this area, I've got titles to a number of professional and scientific articles here in front of me right now that I'm not going to bore you with, but these are written by men of pedigree.
scientists who are believing very much that this is what is going to happen very soon. It will be as it was in the days of Noah, marrying and giving in marriage. Satan has always desired to fulfill on the promise he made with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Believe what I tell you, and you will be as gods. One might ask the question when these transhumans are born, creatures that are half one species and half another, half biologically enhanced machine or half human, when they have self-awareness, where will their souls and spirits come from? What kind of spiritual beings will possess these bodies? What kind of spirits possess the bodies of the Nephilim? According to scientific reports from around the world, transhumanism is going to fall upon us like a mighty wave. And of course, it will be presented as a great benefit, perhaps including a vastly extended lifespan available to you and me if we are willing to pay the price. The only ones who will be able to stand against this mighty wave are the true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. New creatures themselves, forgiven for their sins, bought with the blood of Jesus, inheritors of eternal life in him. No one else will have the strength to stand against what is about to happen in the years ahead. There's something to consider. According to what Jesus said, during the time of the end, many will think they're citizens of his kingdom, but they really won't be, and they will fall away. Look again at Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. The word that is translated lawlessness is the Greek word anomia. It means illegality, a violation of law or wickedness. In verse 10, Jesus says that many will be offended in that day. As we said in a previous study, the Greek word that is translated offended is scandalizo. If it's from the, you get this word in English to scandalize something. What it means is to be entrapped, to stumble, to be enticed into sin. So it appears during the end of days there will be violations of law that go beyond anything that has been seen since before the great flood, and this will entrap many people. What law? Human law? That's, that's hard to accept. I'm sure it, it will include human law, but you know human laws have been broken endlessly, haven't they? From untold eons of time, people are always breaking human law. That kind of law is always rampant in the world. In my opinion, this refers especially to the deepest laws of heaven, laws that were in existence before any human law was codified. These were the laws that were broken that led to such wickedness that it brought the judgment of the great flood. Because of this unique level of law-breaking, understand that, this unique entrapping process that is going to go on, the love of many will grow cold. As you probably know, the Greeks had four different words for love. And the word Jesus chose here is agape. It means self-sacrificing love for others. It means, uh, it means concern for others besides yourself. It means compassion. The Greek word he used that is translated cold is the word suko, which means a freezing chill, as though there's been a sudden drop in temperature. So in the end of days, it appears that even natural human affection and concern for others, compassion itself, will vanish. There will be no trust left in the world. Trapped by 
great and amazing lies. People will betray those who are closest to them. That's what Jesus says. Narcissism and selfishness will have control to an extent unseen in history. Now, this selfishness will have a deep impact on the church in many ways, and many people will fall away. Along with their concern for, their, for others, their love for God will disappear. I believe the beginning, unfortunately, of this lethal self-centeredness is at work within the Western church right now. This loss of love will be the ultimate expression of law-breaking and lawlessness. Let me say that again. This loss of love will be the ultimate expression of law-breaking and lawlessness. And it is what Satan desires more than anything else, the loss of this love. Why do I say that? Turn to Matthew 22, verse 35. Matthew 22, verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It is a mystery to me. I cannot fathom why it is so. But it's clear in the Bible that our all-powerful God, the creator of the universe, has a deep desire for you and me, his sentient creatures, to love him. He doesn't need it. He wants it. And that is of vital importance to us. He wants the love that springs from your heart, the seat of your emotions. He wants the love that flows from your soul, the center of your creativity and imagination. He wants the love that springs from your mind, the focal point of your intellect and will, the center of your decision-making capacities. He wants this love in a mighty flow without restraint, without anything getting in the way between you and him. And sin, law-breaking, self-centeredness gets in the way in all of these areas. In all of these areas, Satan places temptation in your life and mine. He, decided, he, he wants to do this to destroy and corrupt our love for God, just as he did with Adam and Eve. Because they had been disobedient, their love was corrupted for God. You know, uh, the result was that because their love went cold, they became afraid. You know, if you turn to 1 John, let's turn that on its head. It's like where John says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect fear casts out love. Adam and Eve were afraid of their eternal friend. They no longer trusted him and were ashamed. For almost a year and a half, this study is focused on the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Hollywood. The greatest divide between those two kingdoms is the definition and focus of love. As we all know, the god of Hollywood storytelling is Eros. Romantic, erotic love, the thrill of being in love. It's one of the four loves that the Greeks understood. And since the beginning, Hollywood has distorted this love to make it the only love that really matters. In this, it plays an important part in the spiritual destruction of the human race that will find its fulfillment in the years ahead. Eros is a self-centered love that is based on feelings. It exalts the human object of love into a little God to be worshipped so often. However, if this little God to be worshipped isn't worshipped any longer, it's only worshipped as long as the passion and the exhilaration of Eros can be maintained. That's the story of Hollywood love. 
If Eros begins to fade, it means love itself is vanishing. We are falling out of love, and it's time to move on to another self-centered experience. You've heard that famous statement, I just love being in love. That is the love that rules the kingdom of Hollywood. But God didn't make Eros to stand alone. It was created to be an integral part in a delightful dance that includes phileo, brotherly and sisterly love, loving friendship, and agape, the willingness to sacrifice yourself and your interests for the good of another. All of these were meant to live together. What Hollywood does not understand and in so many ways stands against is the very concept of self-sacrificing love, especially, especially the self-sacrificing love of our Father God that he has for us. 27 years ago in 1984, oh, that seems like so long ago, we got a couple of young guys that have just come to Hollywood. They, how old were you in 1984? You guys, were you born yet? No! That is so disgusting! <laughs> they weren't even born! And yes, this is it, this is it. In 1984, I began working on my first TV series. I was executive story consultant on a little uh, series for CBS done through Universal. It was a little family show called Otherworld. It was created and produced by a good friend of mine, and I had been brought on board to help write episodes. Never written for television before. This was the first time. The series was under the supervision of a woman executive who was vice president in charge of new series development at the network at CBS. Otherworld was about a family, a father, a mother, and three kids who inadvertently dropped into another dimension, another world. This world was divided into provinces or zones, and the family had to travel through these zones as they tried to find their way home. They were lost. Constantly, they were pursued by an evil military leader and his forces. If you happen to see this on the Internet today, it is hilariously camp, I assure you. Now, every new series goes through a lot of difficulty. Another world was no different. Our network executive was a constant pain in the tail. It was a huge task trying to please her. Like most network executives, about 98% of... Charles, forgive me for saying this. You weren't this kind of a network executive. I know. 98% of what the creative network executives who work in that area, 98% of what they say and what they want is utterly worthless. Yet we had to try to accommodate what she wanted without destroying the show. That was the name of the game. It's been the name of the game since the beginning. It still works that way. Ask any TV writer, producer in this town, and they'll tell you that is the never-ending dance of television production. All went predictably for a number of episodes. Most of our stories focused on a particular family member and the troubles here she sucked the rest of the family into. Finally, in the script rotation, I wrote an episode that focused on the father. In my story, all the other family members are trapped in little terrifying dimensions or realities inside this one building. And it's there each of these little traps that they're caught in they're all based on the individual fears of that particular family member. Each person is alone and enslaved with no apparent way to get out. The only way to save them is for the father to enter each reality, see with wisdom what is causing the enslavement, and sacrifice himself in some way to free them. That was the script. When I turned the script in, there were kudos from everyone at Universal. I was told it was one of the strongest scripts that had been written at that, to that point for the series. Then it went to the network. 
The reaction was startling. Our network executive simply went ballistic. She wouldn't give notes or ask for a single change. She simply refused to allow that script to be produced at all. And she was very clear about the reason why. She did not want to see any stories about a strong, wise, loving father. Yes, really was that clear. So the script was shelved. Another world only made it for eight episodes before it was canceled. The gauntlet in my career had been thrown. Is this kind of attitude consistent in Hollywood? Is anything ever consistent in Hollywood? Of course it isn't. Nothing, nothing's ever consistent. But I would ask a question. How many strong, wise, loving, and self-sacrificing fathers have you seen presented in film and television in the past 40 years? I think you could count them on the fingers of two hands. The best that Hollywood can do is present weak, stumbling, bumbling, often buffoonish fathers who can't get their acts together and need a lot of help in their struggle to show love. Does that sound like the fathers you've seen on TV? That's the best that Hollywood can present for fatherhood. It's all downhill from there into father stories about coldness, abuse, and rejection. Stories rule the world. I've said this many times. The twisted father stories from the kingdom of Hollywood have replicated themselves in the reality of millions of homes. I firmly believe these stories are gifts from the great lords of darkness. Satan wants to destroy any shred of desire that we may have to love and trust our Father God. On Father's Day in our churches, when was the last time you heard a pastor talk about good fathers without having to include something like this? Of course, sadly, many of us can't look back on positive father relationships. And it's true. The soul-fulfilling prophecies of Hollywood storytelling telling, have taken root. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love him because he first loved us. We weren't out there seeking for our Heavenly Father's approval. We weren't desperately trying to get his attention, destroying ourselves so he would notice us and throw us a scrap of love. We didn't come back from our desperate attempts filled with bitterness and disappointment. No, God reached out to us. He sacrificed himself through Jesus, his son, to find us and save us from the horror of our enslavement to sin and death. He walked straight into our sorrow to show us how great his love is for us. As we prepare to go deeper in our study of the kingdom of heaven in the months ahead, we have said in previous months that the key to that journey is discipleship. Becoming a true disciple of Jesus And that, my friends, is the nature of the only way to live in Hollywood, as far as I'm concerned, if you are a Christian. Becoming a true disciple of his. Before we embark on that journey of discipleship, I suggested that three decisions needed to be made. First, if we want to be his disciples, we must decide that we will never be ashamed of him or his name, even if it brings rejection from the world around us. Second, We must commit ourselves to seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness rather than our own selfish agendas. And finally tonight, the last decision, to be his disciple. We must love him with all our strength, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. This is the discipleship that is necessary for the days of the end. In the deepest sense, this love empowers all the rest, doesn't it? 
You cannot be his disciple. You cannot remain unashamed of him. You cannot seek his kingdom and his righteousness without loving him. But I will tell you what you probably know if you've been a believer in Jesus for a while. In and of ourselves, this is impossible. We cannot love him in our power, our own power. Making the decision to do so is vital, but it will fail utterly without the filling of the Holy Spirit whose transforming power opens our cold, dead hearts to love him and experience his love for us. So our prayer is, Lord, I don't have the ability to love you, but I want to love you. Take me out of my narcissism. Remove the chains of selfishness and heartbroken fear that restrained me for so long. And I will tell you, helplessness, selfishness, heartbroken fear, all of these things are exactly what so many people in Hollywood live with every day. There's a test to know whether we really love God and are experiencing his liberating love in our lives. It's found in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into this world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What kind of love is the Apostle John talking about? Agape love. That's the word that he uses. Self-sacrificing love that God has shown to us and we are to show to others. And in this letter, 1 John, the importance of this kind of love is juxtaposed against what? against the end of days and the rise of the Antichrist and the lying spirits that will overwhelm the world in that terrible time, the love of God is the only thing that will stand against them. The love of God expressed in obedience. Now, obviously, love that is self-sacrificing is not simply an emotion. It's not simply a feeling. There's nothing wrong with a feeling, an ecstasy of love. I hope that in worship you have that kind of feeling and love for God but what matters is not just feeling. What matters is action. You remember the meeting Jesus had with Peter after the resurrection? During Jesus' trial time, three times Peter had denied him. You remember all of that. Now three times in this meeting, Jesus asks Peter the question, Do you love me? Twice the word that Jesus uses is agapeo. Do you love me with a self-sacrificing love? Peter responds, Sure, I love you. And he uses the word phileo. I love you. With a brotherly, I feel affection for you. I feel fondness for you as a dear friend. That's how Peter responds. I think Peter was honest. His focus of love for Jesus was rather sentimental. That's what phileo is, and I think that's the way a lot of us feel about Jesus. At the deepest level, we are fond of him as a dear friend, but rarely does it ever lead to real action and change of will in our lives. The third time Jesus uses Peter's word himself. All right, you phileo me. Peter's grieved. Notice each of Peter's responses. Jesus points him away from simply the feeling of love. Peter is responding with a feeling of love. What does Jesus point him toward? He points him toward action. If you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. There's one way to show that you love me, Peter. Go out into the world that is starving and bring the bread of life. What he said to Peter was entirely consistent with what he had taught his disciples in the past. 
In Matthew 25, 31, I want to read this passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer it and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, and naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? He will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. One of the most disturbing things that Jesus ever said is found in Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, we've prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There is that word lawlessness again, anomia. We prefer grandiose acts, don't we? Show the spiritual gifts, prophesy, cast out demons, uh, do wonders in Jesus' name. So often that is nothing but self-centered lawlessness. What he wants is for us to serve the weakest and poorest among us, the widows and the orphans, those who cannot advance our careers or our reputation one inch. I've spent many years in the growing Christian community of Hollywood. I've got to tell you something very sad to me. Over those years, I've observed something with some notable exceptions, and there are some wonderful, wonderful people in that community. We are one of the most self-centered groups of Christians I have ever known in my life. Christians in this community are anxious to be around anyone who is successful in this business. They are anxious to be around anyone who they think can be of assistance in their careers. We are anxious to help, aren't we? Yes, to minister to any successful person who is in need. Many years ago, Carol and I knew Bob Dylan during his so-called Christian period. He told us that he couldn't even go to a church without being mobbed. He had to go in after a service started and leave before it ended. There were pastors who wanted to minister especially to him, if only they could be introduced. Star worship in the body of Christ. And it is everywhere. In years past, I've known specifically of a phone conference Bible study just for small groups of very wealthy, successful people, many from Hollywood, of course, famous pastors are willing to minister to those people's needs. I will tell you something else that I've observed. In this Christian community, if someone who isn't powerful or 
famous falls into terrible circumstances and has need for immediate physical help, often few will be there to give it. But we might send a little money, we might say a prayer, but our time, our physical presence is too precious to give. Our agenda in serving Jesus just doesn't include getting our hands dirty by helping someone else wade through a disaster that has befallen them. Carol and I have been through several periods of great financial difficulty years ago in our careers. Late 1983 was one of them. After a good start, my film career just sort of stalled. I was unknown, and with no resources, things got bad. Our electricity was turned off. We were members of a little unglamorous, non-Hollywood church. I will never forget one day I was home alone. I heard someone in the, or something in the kitchen. I came out to find a little lady from our church putting groceries on our shelves. She had thought no one was home and wanted to do it without telling anyone. But the Lord wanted me to see that. Someone who didn't have much and was certainly not a beautiful person of Hollywood was giving all she had. My uncle used to have sheep on his farm in Oklahoma. I can tell you that sheep are filthy animals. If you work with them, you get really filthy yourself. Their wool is covered with dirt. Often there's feces in it. You're stepping in their manure all the time. If they're sick, you have to take care of them, and, well, you can get the picture, can't you? Jesus calls us his sheep. If we are his disciples, if we love him, we have to work with his sheep. We have to feed them, and when they are in distress, we have to care for them. If we aren't willing to love Jesus by loving and serving the least, the poorest, the most unlovely, forget about being a disciple. Forget about finding the kingdom of heaven in this world. And forget about being prepared for the days ahead. Jesus is coming soon, and his rewards are with him. Do you love him? In these days that are moving quickly toward the end, what evidence of that is in your life and mine? Thanks for listening. What do you consider normal? Does normal mean good or bad to you? For some people, normal means constant loneliness, pain, and suffering. No matter your circumstances, God wants His love to be the normal experience of your life. Is that the way it is for you, or is it quite the opposite? If I can assist you in your journey, please contact me. My email is colemanluck at gmail.com. If you are finding this podcast helpful, I want to encourage you to share it with your friends on social media. The only means we have to reach out is one person telling another. So until next time, history had a beginning, it will have an end. I hope you are finding God's love and giving love to Him in days of darkness.